Hello and welcome to another rousing edition of Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, falling victim to a chilly little filly. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of lines like that this week mm. um and we do have a dastardly film for you all but before we talk about that we have a very special guest joining us for the second time he is the creator of the double o section blog and a frequent contributor to our friends over at spyberry podcast it is mr matt bradford how are you doing matt hey guys it's great to be back on the show uh, uh yeah happy to be here um, now, you, you had a, a long introduction in the last time you joined us. Cam, what film was that? Oh, my God. That was uh, In Like Flint. We like to, mm. uh, when we bring you on, Matt, we like to talk about sequels. Never originals, yeah. only sequels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I don't, I don't want to spoil what, what we think of the movie, but there's some other themes, too. <laughs> I hope to break out of that at some point. We'll talk about, like, uh, maybe a recent blockbuster or something different. Hey, when Spy Kids 5 comes out, I'll give you a call. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's been over a year, I think, since our In Like Flint episode came out. So what's been new with you? Oh, uh, not very much on the spy front. I mean, I just continue to, uh, to do a sub-podcast on uh, Spyberry with Jeff Quest about called Spy Rewind about spy TV shows. And we've had some good episodes this year, particularly our men from uncle one from the beginning of the year. Um, and we've got a, a good one coming up too, with another uh, special guest about the persuaders. Um, and uh, I've been um, enjoying, it's been a good year for spy entertainment. You know, there's been quite a lot of stuff. You guys have covered the movie side of it. Book wise, there's been a new, uh, a new James Bond novel and uh a new Mick Heron, um, Slow Horses book. So, yeah, lots of good stuff uh, as a spy fan. Well, I, I, I'm just thinking about the things that have come out in the theaters. Uh, uh, had you been on When No Time to Die been out already? It wasn't out yet, no, but I had seen it. That was uh, at oh, work. I had right. seen it yes, about a year. You had early. seen it, yes. <laughs> yeah. So we can talk. I mean, okay. So you already knew like the bombshell ending and all, all sorts of things. And you, you kept that stum the whole time. <laughs> yeah, that was hard to go a year, you know, as a huge Bond fan and someone with a spy blog, which I basically did not update in that time just because I was terrified. I might inadvertently, you know, say something like because you sign massive NDAs, you know, there's very and I would not want to accidentally speak out. But but also I wouldn't want to ruin the enjoyment or or not but the the reaction of other fans but that's something you want to talk about you know like that is a hard secret to carry for a year or more and a hard uh movie not to be able to discuss with anyone uh, with any other bond fans at least you know well if you had brought it up to be fair i'm sure eon would have treated you the same way daniel craig was treated at the end of no time to die and uh you would have exactly. been quickly quickly vaporized <laughs> yep I have a question, you know, you got to see it ahead of, you know, everyone else. Um, was the response what you expected? Yeah, I knew it was going to be divisive for sure. Like that. Yeah, yeah that's gonna, but um, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yes, that was the response I expected. You know, I, I, 
I got to like it more. I was very surprised the first time that I saw I mean, yes, I had an inkling that might happen like a lot of people did, but I was still hoping it wouldn't personally, you know. I uh but I did think it was well well done for the most part if you're going to go down that road and in the time cuz I I end up seeing things multiple times at my job and so I had time not only to I not only saw it early but had time to like process it and go through the multi-viewing so by the time everyone else saw it and was just in that going through that first viewing shock i had already had like six viewings or whatever and 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 been been through all the rewatch and oh and there's this and there's that and and uh you know the things that we bond fans always go through and seeing the movie multiple times but yeah i'd already been through all of that so then when i did finally get to talk to people it almost wasn't what I'd wanted it to be because it was just, uh, no, they're they're just processing the initial shock, you know, and not uh, and and haven't had time to think about it the way that I had. But of course, it's unfair to expect anyone to have at that point. I remember when a, a group of us, like I think it was a couple of listeners, and I went to an early showing on the day of release at the BFI IMAX in London, and we all walked out in sort of the concourse afterwards to. Sh- like like shell shock i think it was that we all just kind of just looked at each other for a little bit like okay now what what do we do and we all just sort of <laughs> walked away into different directions it was very much like an ending of a film quite dramatic really yeah uh that was kind of how it was when i finally started uh seeing it with other people which was still in a work context because it's you know before things have come out they'll be there as clients but there were other other fans of the series work in the same field as i do so it was good to finally have them, but it was just that shell shocked factory. It wasn't really a discussion afterwards. Um, did you manage to avoid the spoilers, like up until up until you saw it in the theaters? Yep. Yeah. I, well, I I saw it day of release. Um, we I think we had it a week earlier than you did, Cam. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And you, yeah. Uh, it was Australia that had it the worst. They had to wait like a month, two months, I think. <laughs> Something like yeah. like September, I think it was. Uh, outrageous, yeah. really. And they, and they managed to, a lot of them managed to avoid it, too. Yeah, knowing in advance what it was, I couldn't believe they weren't going day and date with this one. Because most big movies do now. It's only Bond that really has been doing lately that UK first, which I get. You know, I respect the UK um, uh, uh, pedigree of James Bond. But this movie, of all things, I would think you would want to release on the same date around the world. You should have just ended that sentence and say, you respect the UK pedigree. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, aside from, you know, James Bond, is there any other spy films you've watched over the last year that have come out you've enjoyed? There's been a few that have come out in the cinemas. Oh, yeah, there's been uh, quite a few good ones. Um, I liked Operation Mincemeat a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I liked, uh, which was a rare movie that presents Ian Fleming, but didn't go into the temptation to turn him into a, a James Bond proxy. Right. Uh, in fact, overall stuck fairly close to the book, the historical book that Ben McIntyre wrote, which was great. Um, but yeah, it was nice to, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't help like their like Q branch reference or whatever, but he didn't yeah. end up like uh, at the end of that mini series where they just, you know, made up, historical events to put him in action or something um what else um yeah you put me on the spot there have been quite a few good ones and i'm just not remembering them at the moment i did not care for the one that you guys uh discussed recently the 355 um mm-hmm. yeah 
Yeah, that's. Uh, there's not been many that have uh, messaged us uh, at time of recording. <laughs> that's the episode we have out currently, and there's not been many that have been like, "Hey, if your guy's take was completely wrong, it's a great <laughs> film." Everyone's been like, "Yeah." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a shame though, because I was looking forward to it when it was announced. You know, mm-hmm. like a, a spy ensemble with this cast. Yes, and I am actually a fan of Simon Kinberg, uh, who, who you gave a lot of grief for some very <laughs> uh, deserving reasons. But his first script was the Mister and Mrs. Smith. Yep. Which, like, that was I think he wrote it when he was in NYU, which is just unbelievable to me. Um, and that is such a smart script. It really is. Like in terms of going through the uh the sort of stages of grief in a breakup and then doing it as an action movie um it, it psychologically it works you know it's just whatever you think of the finished product it is a smart script and then yeah nothing that he's done since has really lived up to that that level i don't think but but i do like some of the things that he's written um days of future past was pretty good i did enjoy yeah. that one that's a good film. Yeah, I mean, I think he's a, I think he's a smart guy, just based on you know on that script, and then on even even the scripts that haven't turned out so well. You can tell that there's you know, there, there's still script writing things to them that are very impressive, you know. And as a producer, he's made some smart moves clearly. But um, so yeah, his his involvement did not deter me from being excited for it. I was like, that that was even a factor in looking forward to it. But um, yeah, just uh, unfortunately, didn't live up to the potential that it had. I'm still. I think we're still waiting for that um, breakthrough female-led spy film. I'm, I'll keep lobbying for it. I, I, I would like to see it. Yeah, it was really interesting hearing you guys talk about that because I think all the ones that you were mentioning were original IPs, and I wish, I wish that we lived in a world where original IPs always took hold and and became hits, but for whatever reason we don't and i think what we need is a real well i is is a real like series thing to be rebooted and to me and a lot of spy literary spy fans it's the answer's always been modesty blaze like even though that's a dormant ip that people don't know it's still got that kind of history that makes it easier to sell than i mean some of those were based on books uh the the rhythm section which i actually really loved i i thought that was a good movie but had no marketing behind it. And, you know, that's it was based on an IP, but not one that people really knew. But Modesty Blaze is at least a name in the public conscience, if only from a couple of songs that mention her, you know. And I think that's the way to go for creating a, uh, a successful female spy franchise. Go with one of these existing things. That said, I do hope that there's an Atomic Bond sequel. I think there could be. Uh, that's from a comic book too, of course, but they changed the title so you wouldn't know it. But um, I thought that was a great movie and would love to see another uh, one of those. I, I mean, even also in like the Marvel universe, like the second Black Widow played by Florence Pugh, because it's like they waited too long for that first Black Widow movie where it was kind of more of just a wrap up to a character. Whereas if they spin off the Florence Pugh version, maybe we could get some kind of blockbuster espionage stories there. Yeah, that would be awesome. I'm a huge fan of Black Widow in the comics. There's been so many uh, different takes on her and some really good spy-focused runs. I think at this point in the Marvel, like if we'd gotten a Black Widow movie early on, we would have gotten a straightforward spy movie. But by the time they made this, I, I know that there were, Scarlett Johansson was even saying in interviews, we didn't want it to just be a spy movie, you know, because they'd had all these world-ending things, so they had to do something a little bigger than that. 
Um, I mean, I still, I liked what they did and I liked that when they went over the top, they turned to Moonraker specifically for their uh, yep. inspiration in it. But um, I do hope that with Florence Pugh, we can see some, uh, some actual spy stuff, whether it's on, in a movie or in a, Mar- uh, you know, Disney plus show, that would be great. Um, yeah. It, it boggles my mind why there isn't a successful female spy franchise. Um, and, but the, the answer is not turn James Bond into a woman, as people keep saying. And it, it just surprises me that the very people who say that then don't go and see the rhythm section. So I don't, I, yeah, I don't know why they're not supporting the female-led spy franchises that we get. Uh, or, I mean, I, I think the absolute best one we've had was Atomic Blonde, uh, you know, and that didn't flop or anything, but it wasn't the mega hit that it really deserved to be. Well, much like like Salt, for instance, they're not jumping on the sequel immediately afterwards and sort of riding the coattails of even a perceived success, not necessarily a financial one. Um, you, uh, if they if they announce Atomic Blonde two today, I think a lot of people will be like, "Really? It's a bit late. Have we have we missed that train already?" But no, uh, I don't think it's missed. And the last I heard, Netflix had acquired the rights to it, and that was just within the last year. So because the first one was released by Universal, uh, uh, Focus Universal, some something in the Universal umbrella. Um, so people are still thinking about it for sure. Um, and you know, we go a lot longer for sequels now there's things that appear top gun after 30 years or something sure. but, uh, but even just you know you can be about 10 years between movies and people don't really bat an eye so i think people would still be into that well yeah we, we were talking about james bond and we mentioned bombs and now we're talking about girls <laughs> i guess that leads me to my question cam what are we talking about <laughs> this week we are tackling dr goldfoot and the girl bombs from 1966 the sequel to Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine, which we tackled not so long ago on the podcast. Yeah, we're, we're definitely sounding the sick alert this week. We are, <laughs> we're getting down and doing the bad thing with Dr. Goldfoot. Our gold slippers are firmly back on once again. Um, <laughs> How many of these it, puns it, do you have in a row, Scott? <laughs> I've got literally half a page of them, Cam. I have, um, I have prepared for this. Uh, to be fair, this film is full of one-liners that I've uh, I've robbed completely. Well, before we do the letterbox.com synopsis, I know I'd obviously never seen this film because I hadn't seen the first one. Cam, this is your first time as well? Yep, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but, interestingly, we were talking with you, Matt, before we even recorded the first Goldfoot episode, and you specifically requested the sequel. So you must have some sort of connection with it. Um, yeah, that might be a masochistic streak to request the sequel in this case, uh, <laughs> but uh, it has an interesting story, and I like that. Like, not not the movie's story, but the story of the movie. It's a very weird thing in that it exists as a sequel to two different movies at once. It's not just AIP's American International Pictures follow-up to Dr. Uh, Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine. It's also Italian International's follow-up to a big hit Eurospy parody they had done the previous year called Due, I'll butcher the Italian, but it's Due Mafiosi Contra Gold Ginger, which had a super popular in Italy comedy team of, of Franco and Ciccio. Um, and Emphasis on popular in Italy. <laughs> but very popular in Italy. Like these guys were the 
Adam Sandler of their time and place, you know, and they're very regional specific, like even within Italy, I think they're, they're Sicilian. And I, I think that there's a very specific thing that Sicilians react to in comedy, but they reacted in droves. So their movies were all huge hits and, uh, but not outside of Italy, you know, the, that previous movie did eventually um, play in America because AIP bought it for television and it was released under the title, the amazing Dr. G and you can find it out there. It's dubbed into English. And of course they have these sort of broad super Mario accents for uh, Franco and Ciccio, but it's, it did play on American television, but no one had seen it at the time that this sequel, Dr. Goldfoot and the girl bombs came out. So what they did, you know, they had to craft a movie that was going to be a sequel to both and they set a lot of traps for themselves that we'll, we'll get into in doing that. But I just, I do find that fascinating. But I wasn't aware of this one at first. The first one I knew of was Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine. And I discovered that when I was in college and programming movies for a um, all-night horror marathon that we used to do at Northwestern called uh, B-Fest, where we would play 24 hours of B-movies. And... Um, there was quite an art. People would come from all over the country to see this, and they still do. This wasn't something I started. It wasn't something I finished. You know, it was there before me, and it's there, still going. But um, it, there's a real art to programming it because you want to, you know, keep people awake and interested. So there's tricks like varying black and white and color movies throughout the middle of the night. But then there's also, you know, like you put the, like, um, you wake people up in at the worst part of the night with something shocking, whether it's, you know, some sort of semi porno kind of thing or some sort of like um, just bizarre. How does this exist movie? And then there's standards like, you know, they always play plan nine from outer space at midnight and um, end with a Toho movie. But going through the catalogs of film prints to book, I saw that's when I became aware of Dr. Goldfoot and the bikini machine. And it's just, a title you can't ignore and it stars Vincent Price and it's Dr. Goldfoot and the bikini machine. I want to see this, but I wasn't able to book it for whatever reason. I think the prints weren't actually available. They were in the catalog, but they didn't have them. So it became, that's when I was aware of it and wanted to see it. I didn't actually see it until later. Um, probably the DVD release. I'm guessing when I think that and girl bombs came out at the same time. Was that the keynote? re-release is that the one no there was a release before that um i think it was oh it was part of mgm's midnight movies line which was this great line they did of uh a lot of horror movies but some other other things too and the whole vincent price aip oeuvre pretty much um it was funny listening to the first episode where Cam was trying to explain to you something just about the AIP beach movies. Um, mm. <laughs> I actually mentioned that to my mom on the phone because she grew up in the sixties. And I, I, I'm like, how do you explain Annette Funicello to someone who's never seen that? She had a better answer than I could have come up with, which was, she said, we'll say that she started as a mouseketeer. So she was the Britney Spears of that era. And that's, Interesting. I didn't think of that as being, but yeah, that, that is where she, and I think maybe Frankie Avalon, I'm not sure about him, but that's where she came from. And then teen audiences just followed her to these bikini beach movies. And from her, the whole kind of like uh, that group of people like uh, Dwayne Hickman and all the others who you saw in the first Dr. Goldfoot movie just sort of became celebrities. <laughs> um, and it's a weird American thing, but uh 
But yeah, AIP was mainly known for their horror movies. They were sort of a hammer competitor and they would shoot them in, in England usually with, with price. Um, and they, it was all sort of a money, not a money laundering scheme, but a, a way to move <laughs> money <laughs> around the world at that time. And sort of the post-war era production companies and studios would have money that was basically trapped in Europe, they called it, um, because of local deals of currencies. So this happened in England. Uh, and a lot of the great like Hollywood movies that were made in Britain in the sixties were to release trapped money, you know, to, because they could only make it basically they earned their, their money in pounds sterling and from American releases that played there. And then that was stuck in the country and they had to spend it there. So they would generate right. income by them making financing a movie there and exporting it to themselves, you know, to the U.S. And, and earn money that way. And this happened in Italy, too. And basically, that's how we get to this situation where AIP has released a number of movies that did well in Italy, including, I mean, Dr. Goldfoot and the McKinney Machine did well, but not nearly as well as the Franco and Ciccio movies, uh, which were much bigger. Um, and Dr. Goldfoot had been released there, really playing up the spy angle, which you rightly pointed out is almost non-existent, just sort of like stuck onto it, but it was called, I think, our, our man, double O and a quarter instead of uh <laughs> good name. It's a good name. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, so yeah, there, there was some, some knowledge of the character there and they wanted to basically make a movie that they financed in Lyra and, and have a way to, make some money off of releasing it around the world. So it just seemed like a good idea to someone um, to do, we'll kill two birds with one stone and do the sequel to uh, do a mafiosi contra gold ginger, which is actually quite a funny movie despite its leads uh, who we'll get into, but, uh, and, and the sequel to Dr. Goldfoot and the girl bombs at once. And, um, you know, the, the person who's written more about this movie than anyone, I think, is Tim Lucas, uh, a great film critic who writes the, you know, Video Watchdog magazine and and wrote the definitive biography of the director of this movie, Mario Bava, called All the Colors of the Dark. Right. And in that book, he spends 20 pages, 20 huge pages with small print talking about this movie, which you wouldn't think it could generate 20 pages, but it's fascinating. Oh, and it was because it just talks. Yeah. Oh, have you, Cam, I think Cam has dived deep into its treasures too, by the looks of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was one of the most convoluted making ofs um, I've come across for this show. I mean, it was up there with like a yeah. Casino Royale 67 and uh, Never Seen Ever Again. I love that sort of stuff. So what I'll do, let's get your letterbox.com synopsis for those people that haven't <laughs> quite donned their bikini machines just yet. Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs meet the most titillating time bombs Ever. The scheming, mad scientist Dr. Golford, Vincent Price, plots another mad scheme to take over the world by killing off the major military leaders of every country. To that end, he creates in his secret lab a bevy of bodacious girl bombs, full-length, life-size robots that explode when embraced. <laughs> That's actually a pretty fun yeah. little synopsis there. I I, I loved I kind of laughed to myself as I was reading it. Yeah, 
Totally. A- anything that says like bevy of bodacious bombs. This <laughs> is a good good alliteration. I like it. Say what you will about the um the content of any of the Dr. Goldfoot movies in terms of like the marketing and like elements like that. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Maybe not the films, but we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> the, get there. The marketing, the marketing, and not yeah, that TV special great. we watched. The TV special oh, we watched was, oh, you man. know, that's you know stretched a little bit. <laughs> yeah, stretch is a good word. I would sure love to see those original numbers though, that because they recreated them for the TV special. But I wish the outtakes existed. Like that, the whole concept of it being a musical or musically inclined film really makes sense when you think about it. The the, the type of comedy these films sort of have but um it sounds uh, i i had a pun lined up for this uh, sort of segue into the behind the scenes stuff and now matt's given us a sort of taste of the behind the scenes it's actually even better so um cam it, it sounds like you won't have a hard job well telling us about the behind the scenes of this film so uh, <laughs> please please go ahead this one was a headache. Like, a lot of the time when I sit down to do behind the scenes on a movie, you know, it's about an hour of research or so. This one, I think I was like two and a half hours because there was all these conflicting reports. Wow. It was crazy. I was even looking at, like, places, you know, like um, the AFI Institute, Turner Classic Movies, and they were giving conflicting versions of things that had happened in terms of the making of this movie. So it really was quite <laughs> convoluted for ultimately a movie that, I mean, not a lot really have heard of these days. So that was fascinating. As you know, Matt said, like this was envisioned initially as sort of a sequel to the Franco and Ciccio film, which translates to two mafia guys versus Gold Ginger. Um, and then um, American uh, International Pictures picked up co financing, and that's where the idea of creating the two films came from. And the version that played in Italy, it was um, written by Franco Castellano and Giuseppe Mochia. Um, they were veteran Italian writers, wrote, started in the late 50s and just continued onwards, wrote a lot of movies for the Italian film industry. Um, they also had dialogue work from Franco Dalcar. And the idea for that individual film came from the head of inter- Italian international pictures, Fulvio Lusasano. And I am. I just want to apologize to anyone who's Italian. I am butchering these names because I am sure that I am. <laughs> There's, there's going to be quite a few mispronunciations, I think. But I do have a question. You were both sort of talking about Italian international pictures. Yeah. Did everyone have an international pictures in the 60s? Was there British international pictures and Ecuadorian international pictures? I don't know. Do you know about this one, Matt? I don't. I know Italian international was sort of a specific counterpart to American international. They were partners. I think they were basically... Sister companies to some degree. Oh, okay. I don't know about a British international. Did they? I mean, did the did Italian international pictures sort of cannibalize a lot of AIP's output and you know put a dub on it and put it put them out in Italy? Basically, was that kind of they exchange films in a way? Yeah, that's a really good question about cannibalizing because I don't know about the foreign releases. I don't think so. I think only we did that serious cannibalizing. I think the other countries, for the most part, just did the dubs and and you know released them. Um, but uh, in America, they tended to recut these foreign things. You know, the most famous example being Gojira, Godzilla. Um, but um, yeah, I bet that's a pretty uniquely American thing. But maybe other countries do it. And so the English version of this, which Scott, it's the version you and I watched. 
it's credited to James H. Nicholson under the name James Hartford. He was the founder of American International Pictures. He's, you know, behind the first Dr. Goldfoot film. And it also features writing credits by Louis M. Hayward and um, Robert Kaufman, who worked on Bikini Machine as well. So the differences between the two, which Matt can go way into when we actually talk about the movie, because he's seen both versions, but the version that played in Italy had the two comedic characters, Franco and Ciccio, front and center. They had head billing, they were the stars of the movie, and, and Vincent Price was third build, and the movie was built around them, versus the American version, which was a Vincent Price, Dr. Goldf Goldfoot sequel, with Franco and Ciccio as supporting actors. And there was also musical differences. The scores were different in each film. They hacked the Italian score out for the American one. And um, various other edits were made. They also had different women showcased in the various versions with uh, more Italian-looking women in the Italian version. And they did more of a focus on blonde women for the American version. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to unpack from that <laughs> brief couple of sentences there, Cam. But I mean, Matt, what's what's your take on the? We can get maybe into the the granular side of it later, but the main differences between the two. Well, I, I mean, I think Tim Lucas puts it best where he says the definitive version exists somewhere in between in the viewer's imagination. Neither version of this comedy is ideal, as both omit outstanding scenes to flatter their respective agenda. And it's true. Like, so the script was 270 pages yep. because it was two movies together. So <laughs> wait, is so, that for context for those who aren't in the film industry? Yeah. Is that long? It sounds like it is. So they basically say the rule is a page per minute. This, so this is an epic. <laughs> this is one of the great epics, Scott. One of the great epics of our time. <laughs> Cleopatra. Dr. Golfa 2. <laughs> yes. Yeah, if there were a James Cameron-style director's cut of it, you know, like that would, uh, well, actually, I don't think Mario Bava really wanted much to do with any of the cuts in the end, but... Um, would um, would Chicho's sandwich be even bigger? <laughs> <laughs> he, might, he might have eaten, like, three of those. During the scene, he's really eating that thing, so <laughs> I wonder how he did it on set, because he must have eaten several of those blocks of, like, whole loaves of bread. In the Italian one, there's a joke where the blonde behind him is, like, biting off pieces, too, but I don't, I don't think that was in the American cut. <laughs> no, it's not. It's like, one bit, I, I know we're going off topic, but, like, he takes a bite of it and then goes to kiss a girl, and, like, she, like, avoids his kiss because he's got, like, meat <laughs> hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. What am I watching? Anyway, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> this sounds like a circus, and playing the ringleader to this circus was Mario Bava, the director who was brought on to work on this project. This man is one of the legends of Italian cinema, got his start in 1940, initially as a camera operator. He went to work in effects. Um, he began to work in documentaries and shorts, directing and writing those, and then doing uncredited work up until uh, directing work up until 1960 when he made Black Sunday which opened in North America in about 1961 and became, it was a success then and is now considered just one of the important um, Italian horror films of all time. It's a really fantastic movie. You can actually, I think, watch it for free on Tubi TV. Anyone who would like to check it out, it's incredibly atmospheric, very cool. And it, you know, made him a name. And so, like, they had him under contract. So they kind of strong-armed him into making 
the Dr. Goldfoot sequel, and he wasn't, like, ultra excited about it. And um, this experience, I think, almost broke him. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he was... I think he was going through some marriage troubles at the time, and he was kind of depressed. But he's he's a great director, and, and I don't want anyone to watch this movie and judge his career by no. this movie alone. The American Cut especially... You can't even really call it a Mario Bava movie because it was re-edited, re-scored, as Ken said, re, uh, re-dubbed. You know, like everything was... Ch- I think there were even some new scenes shot, perhaps, as Cam says. He differs on the point of view of who you're hearing it from, but it was definitely not a Mario Bava vision. The Italian one is definitely... That's his cut. He made it, but, uh, you know, I don't know how much say he actually had over it. Um that said, it is a more cohesive film. You know, it has a vision. Like, uh, you can tell it's sort of a singular work. Um, but Bava, yeah, it, b- both Black Sunday, as you say, and Black Sabbath is also just yep. a, another AIP release he did. If you're a horror fan, you must see that. It's incredible. And he did do other genres, too, including the spy genre. And he made one of my top ten spy movies, but also one of my top ten movies in Danger Diabolic, which is... Uh, fantastic i mean it's more spy adjacent than spy because the character is a super villain rather than a spy but it trades on all the tropes of the 60s genre you know with the the lair the villains lairs and the gadgets and the fast cars and the beautiful women um is absolutely a spy movie from a production design standpoint and it's terrific and it's it's been kind of maligned too by being done on mystery science theater which I have a sort of love-hate relationship with. I, I am a huge fan of Mystery Science Theater. I love, you know, when they... But occasionally they do movies that are really too good for it. And Diabolic is, I think, a, a genius movie and an absolutely great spy movie. So see the non-Mystery Science Theater version of that and don't ju- and judge Mario Bava by that movie instead of by this movie, which is not a good showcase for anyone involved, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. I would agree because this is my only Mario Bava film I've ever seen. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I will I will walk away from judging him. Yeah, <laughs> thank and, you. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, and the film you were talking about, Matt, was the actual follow up to this thing. So he rebounded quickly, thankfully. Um, and a few other notes on this one: uh, Frankie Avalon was, you know, potentially going to star in this, but he ended up bailing after the birth of his third child, and he was replaced by the matinee idol Fabian who had had a career in movies. He'd appeared in like the John Wayne films, North to Alaska and The Longest Day. He'd also been in 10 Little Indians. So he was something of a name. He has a cameo in Bikini Machine that like, boy, that was completely forgotten by me. Is it really there? I'm honestly not sure if it's, if it's real or if it's an urban legend. I don't He's know. in the IMDb page. And I mean, I did watch Dr. Goldfoot. I, I guess maybe he was there. Yeah, it's it's ironic that um, Frankie Avalon couldn't do it because of the birth of his third child, but and then they obviously hired a child in a man's suit to play the character in this film because he <laughs> looks like he's ten. <laughs> and um, apparently, Vincent Price and Fabian did not really get along with uh, Franco and Ciccio very well. There was some um, conflict there, but. <laughs> they were warned they're always off eating sandwiches somewhere it's just uh... <laughs> they were apparently warned by crew members that uh, franco and chicho may have had possible mafia connections and so they were very respectful and they were actually quite scared of them at a certain point <laughs> it's bizarre 
what a shoot this must have been. I mean, they were from Sicily. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Like, this is the sort of uh, movie you want to read the book about. Like, they need to be making, like, the two-hour, you know, crowdfunded documentary on this because it would be fascinating. Um, also notable, this is, like, a uh, very fun story as well. Laura Antonelli, who is the female lead in this movie, um, you know, she was hired. And in the future, she would go on to become something of an erotic actress icon in Italian film. And that was not quite the case here. But when she was hired, there was a certain expectation they would have a nude scene. And um, I've read conflicting reports as to why the nude scene was never shot. But I'm going to go with the uh, AFI version, which is the funniest. So they were planning to do it, but her mother was always on set. So they kept rescheduling it because they didn't want to have her mother there. It would be too awkward. And then finally the mother was not there. And they were like, okay, this is the time. They had the bathtub all set up. And then her parish priest showed up. So they had to scrap it for the day. (laughs) And then the parish priest left and they went to go shoot it. And someone had stolen the uh, tub. (laughs) That sounds like a story that would only come out of the Dr. Goldfoot sequel. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, Can I just ask... uh, uh, what is an, an erotic star? Like, is that just us being nice? And, does she work in, in pornography later? Or or is it like one of those, she was just sort of scantily clad in a lot of films? I think it was more just like very sexualized, you know, European films. I don't think it was what we think of as like pornography. That would be my assumption. Right. No, it was mainstream Italian cinema. But in the 70s, there was a lot of nudity in, in every genre. Like they did these sex comedies and they did the giallo horror, you know, um, Thriller movies, which all featured tended to feature a lot of uh, naked ladies in both of those, and Roger that. <laughs> yeah, uh, ironically, she ended up mostly cut out of the Italian one. Like she's a pretty big part of the cut that you guys watch, the American one, and much smaller part in the Italian one. Pa- partly because her storyline is with Fabian. And he's diminished in favor of Franco and Ciccio as the stars, but also partly apparently out of revenge because AIP was upset with her behavior on set, not just having her mom around, but like being a real prima donna. And as a result, ordered her cut from from most of the movie in in, uh, Italy. Speaking of, I've actually brought my priest to the recording. Uh, (laughs) I'll just pass over the mic to him now. American International Pictures except Samuel Arkoff had the best quote. He said, the only picture she ever made with her clothes on, and she made it for us. <laughs> okay. All right. Yep. That's, a, that's a bit stingy. All right. Fair enough. Uh, and Vincent Price also had a quote about this production. He said, the most dreadful movie I've ever been in. Just about everything that could go wrong did. At one point, they even lost the soundtrack to the whole movie. They literally lost it, which is why the movie is dubbed for significant sections, because they had actually improved so much that even the script was no help to them when it came to dubbing. So they had to try to just like read lips and imagine what they were saying at the time, try to remember the best they could. That answers so many <laughs> questions I have about the dubbing in this film. Like, I, It blows my mind watching some of these sequences and that they're not even close to matching what's on screen. <laughs> and having, having had that Mary Claypool interview a couple of months ago, I now know how difficult it is to match uh, sort of lip sync. Yep. Also, it was, I mean, it wasn't just this, yes, this film had crazy things, but in Italy in general, they just shot MOS. They didn't do recorded sound on, on stage uh anyway partly because they did so many international co-productions with stars from various countries so all the movies that they shot at that time and all of bava's movies were all dubbed like that's just how they did it 
there's a bit about that in Quentin Tarantino's um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, too. Like, they just, uh, yeah, in the spaghetti westerns, they would all be shot with everybody kind of speaking their own language. And uh, then at the dubbing stage, they would, you know, put it into... It's not like it's a new thing. You look at a lot of the Bond films in the 60s, and they, most of the women are dubbed, the villains are usually dubbed. They just maybe do a wee better of a job matching it. Most of the time. I think they do a great job in the Bonds. They also probably have more money. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so as you know, Matt said earlier, like this was a hit in Italy. Like it was actually quite successful, the uh Italian version. The American version was I found the quote a disaster. Uh and uh Bava was blamed for it in America. American International Pictures really threw him under the bus, even though the version that played in America really wasn't his movie at all. It had been cut to pieces. Um, and, uh, the top three for this year, number one was the Bible in the beginning. Number two was Hawaii with Julie Andrews. And number three was who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. And, you know, Mario Bava, he'd be okay. He'd bounce back the next year and go on to have a really interesting career. He'd pass away uh, in 1980 with his last film being shock in 1977. And also, you know, we touched on it earlier. He made the movie black Sabbath which is, you know, picked up by a certain band of the same name and is carried on to this day. So, you know, Baba's legacy has lived on in many ways. Well, I think we've arrived at the uh, topic of the hour. Let's drop the periscope, have it appear out of a random <laughs> flower pot, and talk about Dr. Goldfoot and the girl bombs. Uh, Matt, you're the guest. You've seen both versions of this film. We'll primarily focus on the American one for now, but what do you think of the second golfer film it's not good um it's <laughs> that's all folks we'll see you next week it's uh in either version i don't think it's successful but i think that the italian one as i said is at least a cohesive movie because it's this weird experiment where basically you take out the leads for the version that we see so with that, you know, often exposition scenes, you realize when you see something like this, are tied in with your main characters. And we lack all exposition. So often we just go from scene to totally different scene with no understanding of why or how we got there. Um, it's a weird experience to watch it. It's just like, what happened? How did we, we get here? And the jokes are largely unfunny. Um, you know, there's a few that made me laugh that we'll we'll talk about, but uh, for me, it's a lot of misses in the joke department. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I, um, I thought we were off to a really good start. There's a really funny joke right at the beginning where um, I think it's either the second general or the first general. Is it the igloo? <laughs> and and the girl he says the girl's legs and they, she's so hot he melts the ice of the igloo. I was, that, that kind of got a giggle out of me, but it doesn't really get much better after that. <laughs> it, like much like a hot air balloon, it, uh, <laughs> it tends to float down pretty quickly. But yeah, Cam, what about you? What did you think? Um, I found this movie often very confusing. Uh, <laughs> it's like it's so funny because like as a sequel to Doctor Goldfoot, you know, it kind of it is it feels like a sequel like it feels like it kind of belongs within that series you have kind of the silliness you've got the basic concept of what the villain wants to do you've got a madcap chase through the third act like that's the kind of stuff you saw in the first one so in that regard i didn't find it like this massive step down as in a what is this how could this ever be a sequel to dr goldfoot but like the um wedging in a franco and chicho i found incredibly distracting and you know <sighs> 
no offense to, you know, Italian listeners who enjoy the comedic stylings of Franco and Ciccio. I've said on the podcast before that often comedy doesn't translate when you ship it to various other countries. I feel like Franco and Ciccio don't really work for a Canadian viewer like myself. I was uh, very annoyed by them consistently. And I kept wondering why they were taking the movie away from the characters I was more familiar with. Once I did the research, I understood exactly why. But, like, there's sort of that 60s, you know, kind of colorful um, fun to this movie. But... It was the confusion that completely threw me. Like, I didn't understand, you know, the Bill Dexter character. I thought it was actually a recasting of the Frankie Avalon character. And so you had a scene early on where he runs into Dr. Goldfoot on the tarmac of an airport. And I was baffled why they didn't recognize each other because they had done nothing to explain who Bill Dexter even was or what his relationship was to anything. Um, And there's a point that kind of sums up the movie where you're confused for like half an hour or so. And then Vincent Price starts talking to the camera. He starts, you know, breaking the fourth wall to explain what's going on to the audience. And he has an extended bit where he turns and he says, Okay, here's how this works. I've created these women. They are bombs. And they are going to take out generals. And I'm like, I get that. It's everything else I'm confused (laughs) about. And he completely glosses over anything else that's confusing. He only tells you the obvious that you can figure out. (laughs) Well, so so Franco and Chicho humor doesn't translate to Canada, but I'm guessing igloo humor is right down the sweet spot for Canadian audiences. That kind of falls into that naked gun kind of comedy where I'm like, that is universal. It's a Commonwealth <laughs> joke that we all get. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, no, I, I get what you're saying about it, it not explaining things. And the... Like, there's... there's and, that, and it doesn't make sense not having that connected to, tissue to... Um, Frankie Avalon because you think about how he's thrown out of sick yeah and that makes that kind of almost almost tracks with the first film because he doesn't really get on well with sick and so you think oh so there is connected tissue but it never really explains why this chap this Bill Dex is not in sick and he's trying to get back into it I think like on my second viewing I was trying to plot his story through brief mentions between him and Laura Antonelli's Rosanna my condolences Scott that must have been a very difficult journey for you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it's only an eighty-minute film, and they're only given about three minutes of it, really, altogether. So it it wasn't too hard to plot. It's just not given any time whatsoever, and so you don't know why this guy is in sick, then not in sick, then trying to get back in sick, and then for some reason, Franco and Chicho are now in either the army or sick or some <laughs> sort of organization they're working for, despite also being doorman for a hotel. <laughs> Um, I don't know, and and of course, sun lounging and, and eating sandwiches. Of course, I like the latter of those things, but sure. yeah, um, it's very confusing. It, yeah, it's very confusing. I I remember I sat down and actually watched this with um, my other half, Hannah. Funnily enough, oh, she was no. in the in the room. <laughs> now you're single. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're not going to Vegas now. Sorry, Cam. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah she. I'm not going to give her a review of the film, but she she consistently found it like amusing at just how silly it was. Yeah. Like like watching a kid's film. Like, it, okay, there's no logic here. We're just in bizarro world. Let's just have a bit of fun. Um, And, and like, she goes, it's the sort of stuff you talk about on the show every week. No wonder I don't listen. I'm like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, and, you and 7 billion people on this planet. That makes sense. Um, <laughs> but in terms of what I felt about Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs. Yeah, I, I said like on my notes, I, I can forgive the budget. There isn't one. 
that's fine. You can do good spy films without a budget. I can forgive you know, recasting Frankie Avalon's character. I guess he's not a recast, but let's be honest, he kind of is. Yeah. Um, and even like the lack of having money to pay for the Supremes and a better score. Like none of that's here. What I can't get behind is just how pedestrian the pacing of this film is. Despite it being an 80 minute film, I was checking my watch so often during this film. Like I, I, (laughs) I was not bored. I was bemused so quickly like this is just going to be an 80 minute assault on my senses and my uh sense of self and it was and uh, i i didn't find it offensive i just found it to be aggravating and especially some of the bits can mention that the franco and tto man i i it, it's in my dislike section they they were like hot needles <laughs> into my soul i feel like the first one just by injecting you know, stuff like the Frankie Avalon physical comedy, of which there was a lot, where he mm-hmm. was doing like Pratt Falls and all that sort of stuff. It kept the energy up. Whereas this one, a lot of the staging was very pedestrian as well. Like it didn't feel like a movie that had that kind of coiled pace. Like the original is not a comedy masterwork in my eyes, but looks like I, one now. Well, I had more appreciation just for kind of the direction and just the energy of that first one. Whereas like this one feels. Like you said, it's 80 minutes, but it drags. It kind of won me over a little in the third act, I'll say, though. Are are you saying you're a fan of the chase in this film? Because that is the third act. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, like it was so bizarre that I kind of was amused by it. So Cam had clearly lost his mind. (laughs) Possible. (laughs) Possible. Uh, Yeah. Especially when, as I recall correctly, you weren't a huge fan of the chase in the first one, which I actually really like, but... Didn't that go on too long for you or something? I liked it to a point. It was when it started repeating gags, like with the exploding uh-huh. car the second time and that sort of thing. Like I thought some of it was fun. Um, and that was kind of how I felt this time. I was wishing that the boat offshore would blow me up in the <laughs> the last sequence of this film. I was just hoping I would, I, much like No Time to Die, I was hoping I'd get James Bonded. <laughs> sure. Well, okay, well, let's talk about things that we did like. It might be a short list, but I'm sure there's a couple of things in there. Matt, what have you got? Uh, I liked some of the gags. I liked the hydrogen bomb having a warranty when they're on the airplane at the end and they go down. That made me laugh. Um, I liked uh, the um, the gag where they all get onto the plane. They're in a hot air balloon and then they get on a plane. And as each person goes in the door, they punch the person in front of them. So first they're punching bad guys, but then like I think Franco comes on and punches Chichio or something. They're like punching each other. It's just become a sequence. So there there were a few things that you know, I, I laughed at. Um, but most of all, what I liked about the movie is not what's in the movie, but it's this sort of extra textual thing we're talking about. I like just seeing the experiment of what happens when you try to do a movie as two serving two masters at once. And like I just said, what happens when you cut out your lead characters? Since the real thing essentially is a Franco and Chicho vehicle and they're mostly cut out of the American one. And, uh, and it just, you know, it it affects the movie in so many more ways than I would have expected. So I like that about it, but that's not really a compliment. (laughs) It's more like a a curio for you in a sense. Like it's fun seeing what could have been done. Yeah. And I mean, 
There are things that I like in the Italian cut. There's definitely more things I like in that. The opening, for example, we do get a recap of the first Dr. Goldfoot in this one, but just like Cam was saying about Vincent Price's explanation, it doesn't like tell us the things we were, it doesn't answer our questions. It just sort of recaps what happened, but doesn't say what happened to like Frankie Avalon or something. And instead of that, in the Italian one, we get basically a James Bond credit sequence of a dancing girls and oh. with Franco and Ciccio in there. Uh-oh, and they're no. like, oh no, uh oh, pull actually, up, pull up. <laughs> I actually found it quite funny because um, they're looking, you know, they, they want to, they're seeing these giant semi nude women, um, you know, dancing. And they're just kind of looking in amazement at it. And of course, like trying to touch them and then the, they disappear or whatever. Is it like those videos of the of like the cat with like the iPad and the fish on the ice trying to like tap yeah. the fish? <laughs> yes. Is that what, they're it just is. trying to grab them from it yeah, from it's air. kind of like that. Um, okay. And I do want to explain about Franco and Chichi because we we mention them by name, but it's hard to convey the essence of Franco and Chichi to a listener <laughs> who hasn't seen them. <laughs> you have the floor. So... <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Bradford. <laughs> <laughs> Like a lot of your classic comedy duos, there's there's a short one and a tall one. Um, the the short one is is Franco, the tall one is is Chicho, I believe. Um, and Chicho's got a mustache. Franco's humor, his shtick, is almost entirely face based, which I find particularly annoying. Um, where he... <laughs> That's the case with Scott as well. It drives me crazy. <laughs> I'm always grinning and showing my teeth when I'm making really? comedy acts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, there's, there's people who overcome that, like Jim Carrey, you know, he started out as a very face comedian, you know, he'd do these Mm. routines, but he's brilliant at it where he can do an impression just by changing the shape of his face. Uh, I don't think Franco is as brilliant, although he has something, but uh, he does mugging is his main thing and, and mouth stuff where he'll like, his teeth will chatter. It's a lot of where he's just sort of like moving his jaw up and down. Yeah. (laughs) And and he's got another shtick that he does where he'll be wearing a hat of some sort. And through moving the muscles in his head, somehow he makes the hat sort of go up and down. And he does that a lot. And a lot. (laughs) That's like a Marx brothers thing too. Like Harpo Marx did that sort of thing. Yeah. But Harpo Marx was a genius. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's true. (laughs) But yeah, they're, they're, they're an odd, um, I mean, they're just so Italian. And again, uh, you know, I'm sure I I think the Italian national film, uh, forum or whatever did like a tribute to them. Like they're hugely beloved. So, so, you know, uh, like Scott said, apologies to Italian listeners. It's just very hard to, to get that humor in other places. That said, I, you know, I'm kind of won over on them by their previous movie being good. Um, and some of their gags that are just tried and true just work. Like, oh, hey, there's another thing for what I like. I like the mirror routine that uh, Chichio does with Vincent Price. And it's the classic Marx Brothers mirror routine. A lot of these jokes from Duck Soup yeah. are just like recycled. Yeah. They recycle Marx Brothers. They recycle Lars Lowe and Hardy and tons of cartoon things like that. That tone we're talking about of the kids movie sort of thing is largely it's like a living cartoon. Um, but yeah, that, that mirror routine, which is longer in the Italian cut and not in a bad way, that is an effective gag to me. So, so there are things that, uh, you know, Franco and Ciccio aren't without, you know. <laughs> it's longer in the Italian cut. 
Yeah. They track that choke out more. <sighs> they do. Wow. The thing about Franco and Chicho is like we're judging them based on this movie, which I don't think they would have held up as one of their all-time greats. It might be a little bit like judging Jim Carrey on, I don't know, Mr. Popper's Penguins or something. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Mm. Yeah. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Do you want the truth? Because this week on Agents in the Field, we're going to tackle 1992's A Few Good Men. Can you handle it? And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Um, Cam, what about you? A like. So I'll name just some like gags I liked because it's kind of tough to work those just into a general overview of what you liked. I thought the part where they had all the people in the trench coat and they said, listen, giant sir, that made me laugh really hard. Uh, that mm -hmm. was maybe the best gag. I laughed at that too. <laughs> um, I also thought the gag where um, the, um, <laughs> okay, the fast motion chase, I kind of admired the energy of it. It started off kind of annoying me, but at a certain point, it was kind of like the um, the rake bit in that Simpsons episode where Sideshow Bob keeps stepping <laughs> on rakes, where at a certain point, it just becomes even more funny because you're just like kind of going out of your mind watching it. Mm -hmm. And that was the case with that chase where it's kind of a silent movie chase, um, it's, you know, having the, the cards pop up like a silent film. But where it really got me, where it kind of won me over was they are being tailed by a guard or the purveyor of an amusement park, whoever this gentleman is. And he's talking like a chipmunk. His voice is all sped up. And this continues for a prolonged period of time. Some would say a torturous amount of time. <laughs> but at a certain point, he is like basically bails out of a um, hot air balloon. And then a couple minutes later, he's in a cloud as an angel. And that was the funniest <laughs> moment in both Dr. Goldfoot movies. I genuinely laughed out loud at that. And he's still chasing them for the money. Exactly. That made me laugh pretty hard. But in terms of other things, I just thought, like, visually, this movie sometimes clicked with me. Where I just appreciated that sort of 60s beauty you get. Where... This is going to sound like the most like backhanded compliment, but there was a shot of a staircase I really liked when they're showing that hotel. And they use that shot a couple times. It's really beautiful. Like if you print that out, you could put that on that one perfect shot social media account. It just looks fantastic. There's also the scene where you have like all of these women in gold bikinis all dancing in like synchronized movements. And I was like, that is the kind of craziness that I enjoy in these Dr. Goldfoot movies where it's like these kind of feverish visions of like 1960s spy spoof stuff. I thought that really worked. So it's like when they had moments of visual invention, it could kind of win me over. It was just I wanted more of it. So, yeah. We got some insight there into Cam's desktop wallpaper. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> it's just a shot of the the girls dancing. Thank you, Cam. <laughs> that staircase shot is such a bava shot. Like there are moments where his like visual style does come through. Not many, honestly, in this movie, but that's one of them. Yeah, the moment that made me this is not a good shot, but there's a the moment that made me laugh where like they have this panning shot of of Doctor Goldfoot's laboratory. Which is clearly just an empty set, sure, with a couple of like little little tables with beakers on it. Um, it you could see the lack of budget in this film, <laughs> and it, it's such a long shot of this empty wide room with no one in it whatsoever. <laughs> you just think, like, come on, guys, either don't show it or put some stand-ins there and some tables with beakers. I don't know, but that that, that did get a giggle out of me. The the only thing I'm surprised no one's brought up is in terms of likes, is Vincent Price. I know he doesn't get enough time in the film, and the film doesn't make any sense, but he's as great as Dr. Goldfoot as he was in the first film. He totally gets the camp fun side of the role and leans into it completely. I know, obviously, he didn't have a good time making it, but I still have a good time watching him. That's true. I mean, watching him jump out of a plane with an umbrella like Mary Poppins, I'm like, what more can you really ask for? Yeah. Uh, Did you miss his sidekick from the first one, Igor? No. No, I did not. I liked Igor. I, I was kind of like an Igor fan. I think I, I think having a foil for him in a sense where he could just like throw jokes at worked for me. Yeah, I thought he played well off of Igor, so I missed him. Now, I I like well one thing that I like about this movie is that it's more of a spy movie because yeah, you, as you pointed out, the first one, despite the you know being a ostensible Goldfinger parody, is not real. The plot is just like trying to get my gold digging, but this one is actual. You know, it's a standard issue eros plot of we're going to kill nato generals america and russia are going to destroy each other so that china conquers the world and dr goldfoot is working with china which is interesting but so his two sidekicks are both chinese and the really interesting thing is here is they're both chinese played by actual asian actors which is not a common thing in the 60s tons of times you would have caucasian actors in you know offensive makeup doing those roles so this i mean that's something I will give it credit for. Um, that said, like you made the the hard job joke at the beginning. Her name, the the female assistant, is named Hard Job. I don't get it. There's a lot of jokes you can make on the odd job name with job. Like clearly, you you can be filthy minded about it and do a lot of things, but Hard Job is not one that comes to mind, and it doesn't seem to suit the character. Did you? Did I miss something there? I'm not sure where it comes from. I, I will just say my favorite take on the odd job name is Random Task. Yeah. That's that's that that's the OP when it when it comes to that. But who would have thought we would be patting Dr. Goldfoot 2 on the back for being progressive? Well, well I was going to well, ask you, what did you think of how the Asian characters are treated in it, though? I mean... Uh... That's a whole other question, yeah. Because, I mean, it's like... And apparently they did want to cast more Asian actors to kind of capitalize on the popularity of Oddjob and Goldfinger. So that was something that was, I guess, on their minds. But at the same time, like this one has a lot of very cringeworthy uh, humor, I guess. Especially Franco and Chichio are constantly chasing people down because they assume they are Chinese. Like they are (laughs) jumping all over Fabian because they think he's Chinese. And I didn't really even understand the joke. (laughs) It was like, okay... I felt like that was a reference to something I didn't get. Yeah. I yeah. think it was just xenophobia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is entirely possible. Um, well, think, speaking of things we didn't like, including mm. xenophobia, um, let's talk about dislikes, Matt. Something you haven't mentioned yet. 
<laughs> oh boy, I got a list. <laughs> um, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> um, very minor one, but at one point, Doctor Goldfoot sends a girl bomb in to kill a general he already has in captivity. It seems like an incredibly like non like like expensive way. Presumably, these robots cost something. Like Fabian mentions, these these plastic material. So, aren't there aren't there more economical ways to kill someone when he's already in your captivity? But that's a very minor quibble. <laughs> but um, was that the general that looked exactly like Doctor Goldfoot? Yes. There's the one with the stutter that I was originally going to open this episode with, but I thought that was A, in bad taste, and B, <laughs> a very bad joke. Yeah. Yeah. That was General Willis, and I was completely baffled by that character. I didn't understand why he looked exactly like Dr. Goldfoot. <laughs> I guess money. <laughs> Just so that Dr. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, that's true. They were spo- they apparently, according to the audio commentary by David DelVal, they uh, had a- another actor to play that part. And then, like, I guess they weren't able to hire him. So, yeah, I think it was money to some degree. Price ended up playing both roles. Um, But, yeah, other things that I I didn't like um, were... Oh, the girl bombs outfits. They're they're not really flattering. They're for that gold lame material, I guess. It just it gets really it bunches up and has a sort of baggy fit. Um and you know, at some point they probably should have decided that it's cool to have gold, but maybe this isn't the best way to do it. Um I I don't know. It it, it fit Franco quite well. Yeah. That's true. That's true. And that is the best moment um of its yeah, its use. Um that actually worked better for me than the price in drag bit, which should have been funny, but that's, that's going in my dislikes. Uh, so price is at one point pretends to be a, a pregnant nun for some reason uh, to mislead the authorities and think that his, he was pregnant. Uh, villa... That was the bit. Yeah. I, I was wondering why he had a bump. I didn't. <laughs> oh my God. I got the nun yeah. part, but I didn't get the pregnant part. <laughs> I think so. I mean, he has this big pregnant, like prosthetic belly on, um, Maybe he's just trying to change his body shape, but it seemed like he was supposed to be a pregnant nun. I... Was it a miraculous birth? Uh, I... Whoa, whoa. <laughs> like so many things in this movie, it raises yeah. more questions than let's, it is. Let's not dig into that one. <laughs> I uh, didn't like um, the chase. <laughs> the chase that Cam liked. I, <laughs> whoa, whoa, time... whoa. No, you got to own that, Cam. I you said, said it, you liked it. It somewhat won, it somewhat won me over. No, nope. no, nope. no. Nope. Cam, you, 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 ha- you mentioned the chase in your likes section. So it's, it's Cam Smith approved. I like some of the gags in the chase. You know, it kept moving. It did. You're going to be talking about it and all, comparing all future spy chases to that gold standard, the gold foot standard. <laughs> um, oh, no. I didn't like... Uh, to me, I like the chase in the first one a lot more. I didn't like any time that this went into zany sped up mode oh, of like hate sped up. Yeah, movies. okay, yeah. I mean, okay, you're referencing silent movies, but so what? It doesn't make it funnier. The the sped up thing. It's something Scott and I have really not liked in things like Gotcha. Like when you get to some of those '80s movies and they do it, where it's like really eye rolling. This one kind of worked, but at the same time. There's scenes where, like, it's um, malfunctioning robots, 
where it's an actor like bouncing all over the the screen and i was like more annoyed by that usage than i was <laughs> in the chase but at the same time i really wanted to see that footage just played at normal speed to watch this um i think it was always an actress doing it like just having to run around a set looking crazy like that must be really funny to watch in at normal speed that's true maybe just the behind the scenes footage that's it yeah that's all okay. i need to see yeah uh, Cam, what about you? A dislike? Uh, obviously, you, I know you spent a lot of time analyzing the chase of this film. Uh, sure. So maybe you don't have any more. I mean, to me, it was just like the overall sense of storytelling confusion. Um, that I can kind of look past that sort of thing in like a wacky madcap comedy if I'm having fun with it. But the fact that like it felt pedestrian just made me that much more annoyed. And I thought like the lead, Bill Dexter, played by Fabian, I thought he was like terrible. Like he just had no charisma, and I didn't, I didn't hold Frankie Avalon up on the echelon of the great actors of yesterday. <laughs> but then watching this one, I really admired what he was doing. As I said, with like the physical comedy and the energy scene to scene, like Fabian just felt kind of lost in this in this movie. So he didn't work for me. The female lead, you know, the character of Rosanna didn't work. Nor did their dynamic, where he keeps kissing her and she keeps slapping him. And I'm like, okay, this isn't particularly funny. So none of that worked. I want to say, I did like one thing about that, which was that in the American cut, it's one of the few things that actually pays off. Because you get a lot of things that are set up and don't pay off. But her not wanting to uh, kiss him and not liking coffee is then when there's a, a girl bomb version of her, he can understand why that's not really her. So I, I enjoyed that that was a storyline that had a follow through. Yeah. Also, to be fair, as an audience surrogate, um, I feel like Bill Dexter works quite well because we were also confused and didn't know what was going on. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, another thing that annoyed me was they introduced a piranha pool and then did nothing with it. That is a sin. In the Italian version, do they do anything with it? Oh, yes. There's this whole oh. bit. Like So many of the things that are set up and not paid off are in, in the Italian one. And I also I want to... Um chalk that that pacing issue you you were talking to to this american editor ronald sinclair i think yep. again rather than baba because that italian one does flow better it does you know it's paced like a movie as opposed to whatever this is but um yeah the piranha pool is a great uh payoff where they they go back uh well franco and chichio when they break into the place um they find it and they for whatever reason franco wants to go for a swim um, which doesn't make much sense, but he dips his foot in and it get, his shoe gets eaten off. So they go back to the boss and they tell him, it's there, Goldfoot's there, like, look at my, my shoe. And of course, it makes no sense to him like saying this, but uh, they're talking about carnivorous fish and pools, but he does go. So that motivates the military incursion that we see, which is totally unmotivated in the American cut, where they're like carrying a bomb for whatever reason. Oh, um, that's why that's there. Yeah. Yeah, that baffled me. Yeah. They go back and they have this... Um, this uh north by northwest liquor cabinet moment or moonraker lab moment where of course they they show up with the boss and they're pointing to a piranha pool and dr goldfoot has replaced the piranha with goldfish and uh one of them franco or chichio i think franco says they've turned vegetarian which actually made me laugh um so so to me that was a worthwhile payoff and it even goes further where goldfoot has stored the piranha in his bathtub while he has the goldfish in there so they then break into the house and they get into the bathroom with the the bathtub full of piranha uh oh also when they had gone into the pool initially the first time one of goldfoot's goons had come after them and ended up in the pool 
and they try to save him. They reach in, but they just pull out a skeleton. And then Franco's like, ah, a skeleton, and they, a swimming skeleton, and they run away because they they don't get that it was the person turned into a skeleton. They think it's a, but anyway, up in the bathtub, they recall that where another one of the goons comes in and ends up through like uh, pratfalls falling into the tub, and he gets skeletonized. And they, uh, at that point, just adding their favorite little um, uh, xenophobia to that. They're like, a Chinese skeleton! And they uh, run out of the bathroom. Um, so yeah, the, the piranha pay off big time in the Italian cut, and they don't pay off at all. Like, I don't know why you even leave the setup in, in the American version. Well, is, is that the same set that's used when Dr. Golfer comes up through the bottom of the bathroom for some reason, and then leaves? Like that's just there for yes. a, a few beats, and everyone's and there was a guy in the mirror, and it's like this is my perfume, and then he, he sort of walks out. I, I didn't know why that was in the film. Yep, anything like that, chances are it's got a longer sequence associated with it, it or especially those getting from A to B things. There's so much of that where it's like, oh, you see the Italian one, you're like, oh, this is just a little scene. I don't know why they cut it. It's just a couple of seconds that shows how someone gets from this place to that place. Do they do more in the Italian cut with Rita the computer? No, um, but okay. actually, I did think that that was a, a decent gag. Like Goldfoot's an early hacker. Uh, you know, I didn't like the periscope stuff that he's got. That periscope that floats across the room that Scott alluded to. That kind of worked for me. It, it, it made, made me laugh. Me laugh yeah. several. The fact that he like just bent the laws of physics and it was just like it was like yeah. leaning and stuff. Yeah. I was like, okay, great, sure. But, but I did like his his early hacking where he like haywires rita to select the worst agents and that that'll turn up again in a bunch of spy spoofs to come including the one that i always think of for some reason is uh curse of the pink panther where they choose ted wass as the greatest detective to look for clouseau because a computer messes up um yeah well don't they also um pick isn't there also a a robot that chooses flint in the first Derek flint film yeah Yep, you're right. Yeah. There's a computer like that in there. That's wow. I just thought computers could do everything back in the sixties. Yeah. <laughs> but there wasn't more to Rita in um mm. in the Italian one. But so many things because really Franco and Chicho are the leads. Like so it's and that's that's your trade off, you know, to get a, a cohesive movie. But they work better for me as leads than as unexplained supporting comedic roles. Um and uh, there's a great a kind of, well, okay, nothing's great, but comparatively within the movie, there, sure. there's a fun bit when they go through their spy school training and they they go to the Q branch and they go on a shopping trip through the armory. They both have like um, shopping carts that they're pushing and they're pulling off guns and, uh, and explosives and dynamite and putting it in their cart, um, all to a score that the Italian score is just better in general than the uh, American one. And then they get to the end and they find some like gelignite stuff and they're tasting it and they're like, Ooh, pistachio. And then uh, Chichio doesn't like it. So he spits it out just as the boss walks in and it blows him up in a cartoon way, of course, where his hair is frazzled and he's got, uh, you know, black powder on his face. Um, but I found that a funny little scene. I, I tend to like Q branch things. And uh, <laughs> actually, there, this is a total aside but in the previous franco and chichio movie the one this is a sequel to there's a great q branch gag where they get this um shaving kit full of all these weapons you know like toothpaste that's poison gas and like uh this and that 
and their bag gets switched with this honeymooning couple. So they end up fighting the odd job like character in that Moaka with actual toiletries. Like they pull out the toothpaste <laughs> and they expect one thing. And that's a great setup and payoff. <laughs> that's kind of clever. I like that. Yeah, that's 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 fun. Yeah. I mean, Cam, we should address this now. Are we going to have to cover this other Franco and Chichio Goldfinger spinoff riff? A Goldfoot spinoff? Well, no, whatever. it was like a prequel, Goldfoot. I guess. A prequel to the sequel. Oh, the prequel. I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, I think maybe we should give it a try. I, I might need a bit of distance to, yeah. to uh, defrag from yeah. my Chicho <laughs> and Franco overdose. I need distance, Scott. Plenty of distance. But I'm not opposed to it. I think you got to cover it at some point. <laughs> I, I think Matt's just booked his next visit. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. He said no. <laughs> He's not going back to that. Um, I mean, well, I did have... I did have a question just for Matt. Like, how does the film open in the Italian version? Like, do Franco and Ciccio come in much earlier? Yeah, so it starts on them after the... Well, I mean, even in the credits, it's them. And it, cause yeah. it's a direct sequel to that previous one where they were kind of secret agents in the end, but still sort of, like, um, probational. It's They're already agents, and they're undercover as, uh, as um, doormen there. And okay. then... Yeah, they're so they're already sort of known to the organization, um, and uh, yeah, it really just relies on the audiences being familiar with the setup already from the previous one, which makes a lot more sense as to why they're just randomly in the hotel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think I've already covered most of my dislikes. I won't drag it in too much, but the only thing I just want to say it it's an exceedingly cheap looking film. Yeah, it's 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 like Star Trek. 1966 levels of cheapness even i think even that looks better than this does that show looks yeah, beautiful like are you that's a beautiful it's more like the uh, i i was taking it back <laughs> i was walking it back as you said it uh, i understand why you jumped in it's more like the live action equivalent of the 1973 animated uh star trek show yeah the, uh, dr goldfoot is a jerk that is a reference that yeah. no one yeah, yeah. will get um but uh yeah i, I we've all said the dislikes this film is exceedingly infuriating but I think before we take us to the not clear so I'm going to throw out for any final notes I had a question that I wanted to throw to you all yeah and that is do girl bombs have sentience huh I was puzzled by this question in my second viewing because you think of the first film and the bikini machines they seem to have a will the Sue Hart robot kind of has a will and she does what she wants to do and and like falls for frankie avalon and 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 that but in this film he's just creating these girl bombs and they just go off and and explode over people is dr goldford a mass murderer of sentient creatures i think they don't uh but but there are some moments uh, and also are they clones because sometimes there's a machine used to clone real people like with the hat check girl and then with Chichio later on. But are they all clones? Like, because well, that, that leads that's sort of what made me think about it originally, because there's the coat check girl and there's also someone he blows up very early on who he brings back again. Um, like, is this like a, a Battlestar Galactica where her like sentience uploads to the network and then downloads into the new body? So it's her last memory you know, screaming in pain as she explodes over a general. <laughs> I was wondering that too, and that's no more explained in the in the Italian cut. But it's a good question. It's probably a bit deeper than the, than they ever intended to go on Doctor Golfer too. There is no way that they were uh, putting that much thought <laughs> into whether these machines were sentient yeah. or not. There's no way. 
my understanding of it is that Goldfoot has reached another level with these ones and, you know, because of the problems that he had with the other ones being sentient. So now they're just pure weapons. Um, but that said, uh, oh, they, it also kind of makes good on the song and the first one, the Supreme song, where it, there's a lot of lyrics about how the girls are slaves, which are, you know, certainly um, problematic lyrics today. Uh, but there's more of that <laughs> yeah. with these gold bombs, where at one point in the Italian cut, Franco and Chi are tied up in the uh, lab and they're capering around and accidentally hit the button and turn on the machine and start like a whole parade of girl bombs being made and coming out. And one of them comes up to them and says, um, uh, what is my command, master? And uh, Franco says, a ham sandwich, you know, calling back to your favorite scene there. And Chigio has more of a mind. He's like, no, untie us. So, yeah, they, they seem to be completely um, uh, submissive to the commands of, I guess, the first person they see. Um, and I just wanted another sandwich, Kag. That's all I wanted. Yeah. Oh. yeah. It's. It's interesting to me, you know, Matt, we had you on for In Like Flint, which, you know, we were fans of Our Man Flint. And In Like Flint was, despite being the sequel, somehow, like, it had more problematic material than the original did. And that's kind of the case here as well. Whereas, like, you can say that there's definitely kind of that winking 60s sexism in the first Dr. Goldfoot. But this one, you know, you've got the racism. You've also got some, like kind of intense scenes of them chloroforming like young women where I was like, wow, this is uh, played out a little more uh, intensely than I expected. Prolonged chloroforming as well. They really like show how long it might actually take to chloroform someone. <laughs> yeah. So it was just interesting to me that like this one had those introduced elements that suddenly made it seem more dated than the original, just like uh, the Flint film did too. Yeah, that's a weird theme to the episodes I've been on of, of your podcast. It is strange. Um, and uh, I actually got a lot of flack on the last one of people online saying, you can't uh, judge old movies by today's standards. What, what, what are you guys doing? And I don't think we are. I'm, I'm certainly, you know, it's, we're not saying that any of these things stop us from enjoying. Other things might stop us from enjoying the movie, but I'm certainly not saying that those stop. But you just can't look at these things without thinking those thoughts. So I don't know how you're supposed to, you know, I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, tearing the movie apart for that, but you, you can't not talk about these things. You yeah. know, they, they exist and it's a way to, it's a kind of a um, pathway into the mentality of the era, which is interesting. I think acknowledging it is the healthy thing to do and talking about it is the healthy thing to do. I think if someone's watching this film and seeing those chloroform scenes and going, this is fine. That's the issue. There's your problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're we're getting a um you know, we're sort of movie sociologists in looking at at the past society through through that. So yeah, you've gotta look at those things and, and um you know, but by no means are am I forming my opinion of the movie based on the prevailing um uh feelings of the time, uh -huh. you know, and, and, and ways. But yeah, they exist. Um, well, you look at like um, Goldfinger is always the, the benchmark I use in the 60s. People call ben, uh, Goldfinger yeah. the greatest Bond film. Well, many do anyway. And but it, and and there is a couple, there's one problematic scene that we know in Goldfinger. We all know. Um, but it's very short and we can kind of compartmentalize it and say it's kind of a, a, of its time and that's just how it is. We don't like it now and that's fine. But we still say Goldfinger is one of the best Bond films of all time. If Goldfinger had been half 
scenes like that, maybe we wouldn't call it that. Luckily, Goldfoot 2, you know, the girl bombs, is not full of these sort of things, but there are more of them, and that's why I think it's important to talk about. I, I, Cam's benchmark is something I've always adopted, is, is does the material like this in the film overpower it? I always go back to one of our dinosaurs is missing. That Peter Ustinov character overpowers <laughs> that film, and so you can't get away from the stink of the, the pure racism in that film. And so it's always something I will dislike. This, this film has some tiny bits that we bump on, but I mean, we're spending a lot of time talking about it. But it really isn't anything I, I think about when I think of this film. Right. I think for me, like, where it sinks this movie in some aspects is, like, the Franco and Chicho stuff, which, look, it didn't really work for any of us that much. But, like, probably, like, close to 50% of their jokes are about, like, you know, Asian people specifically Chinese. So I'm like, okay, well, that kind of overrides my ability to walk away saying positive things about their contributions to the movie. But it doesn't impact the overall movie itself. Yeah. Yeah. And at least in the longer, in the Italian one where there's more of them, I don't know that there's more jokes like that. Like, I mean, okay, there's the Chinese skeleton one. But for the most part, I think those ones did make it in. Like, Because I probably the AIP editor was like, this is the kind of humor that any white person can get because we're making fun of someone else, you know? So mm-hmm. those ones probably made it, made it in for the most part. So ultimately there's less of that it, it just by percentage, you know, of their comedy in the, in the one that's more Franco and Chicho focused. I don't think that was a cornerstone of their act. I think it was just, you know, like we're saying of its time and how people looked at things, it was a small part of it. It just happens to be uh, disproportionately represented in the bits of theirs that end up in the AFP cut. Right. Well, is is there any other final notes anyone has? Well, I just got some more things about the, the difference in these cuts. Uh, I mean, to me, the, the real takeaway is realizing how much exposition is tied to a main character. You know, and that by cutting out these, these main characters, we're losing so much of that. But um, we also have... Um, the finale is very, you also lose, so you, you lose Laura Antonelli in the Italian one because of that weird uh, revenge thing, but you also lose a lot of Vincent Price in the American one. There's more Price in the Italian one because he had a lot of scenes with Franco and Ciccio, um, including at the end. There's a whole lot when they, uh, after they parachute out of the plane and get to Russia, first they're accepted there as heroes because they've saved the world from World War III, which is going to be U.S. versus Russia. And the Russians have heard this, so they're giving them a uh, a um, fancy reception. And, uh, and then, um, in like a very... Oh, the title of the Italian one is uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Semi-Cold, is what, which what it translates as. And um, obviously that's, you know, riffing on, as you said, the uh, a popular spy title at the time, but also it does retain the sort of like cynical view of spying in that. So they're being treated like royalty by the Russians and then they get betrayed by their own side. The boss calls up because he's been on the phone with the president that you see in the American cut. And then he calls them up and says, those guys, they're actually traitors. Uh, forget all about everything I said about them saving, saving them. And that's when they get put in the gulag at that point. Um, so it does have a surprisingly downbeat Le Carre note for a Franco and Chicho madcap comedy. 
then there's more of them in the gulag and price shows up still unexplained how he can now be i guess just because goldfoot is bad and russians are bad so from a western perspective it's of course he could be a general there but he shows up at the gulag and they're cooking spaghetti and there's a, a gag about how Franco is cold and he keeps trying to get closer to the pot. And Goldfoot comes in and he wants uh, some more, he wants some of their spaghetti. So uh, Chichio opens the pot and we end on this truly like horrifying image of Franco inside the pot, like looking up from, from doing his mugging from like inside this pot. Is he boiling to death? Who knows? The way he's mugging, he could be. I don't think that's what we're supposed to think. Uh, but it's still just a, a really like horrific image seeing that face looking up at you out of a pot of spaghetti. And on that, we, uh, we close the uh, Italian version of the movie. I honestly think I want to go and watch the Italian version of this film. Now this is, that's the only thing I think I'm taking away from this discussion is just to, <laughs> just to subject myself to more sandwich eating. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. I mean, this was Mario Bava's first and last comedy. <laughs> So. <laughs> a very important piece yeah well gents i think we've arrived at the ultimate question so let's stick our fingers in the socket and dance around the room really fast and answer the question <laughs> does dr goldfoot and the girl bombs make the knock list the bikini machine is not there but can these bombs make it matt you're up first I mean, it's no surprise. No, this is not a knocklist film for me. Uh, yep, that's genuinely no surprise for anyone who's just listened to the last 90 minutes. Um, Cam, <laughs> what about you? Yeah, no way. No way. Um, you know, I the the first Dr. Goldfoot was kind of like silly nonsense, but like a movie that I kind of have thought back on since we reviewed it, where I've been like, you know, there were some funny parts to that that kind of made me mm -hmm. laugh. Not enough to maybe go back and rewatch it anytime particularly soon, but nonetheless, I have a certain fondness for Vincent Price in that movie. This one just feels kind of like a lesser sequel to me, and one that is so confused because of all these behind-the-scenes, you know, various uh, <laughs> machinations that were going on. So, yeah, it's a no for me. Yeah, um, well, that's two no's, and so, again, my vote is pointless. I'm going to go for no. I do find it's the duality between this and In Like Flint, how these like confused sequels that just don't land as well as the first one does, despite doing things slightly differently, perhaps a bit more spy in it. Um, and, and obviously Matt's been here for, for both of them, so we'll try and pick an appropriate film for his next visit, of course, as well. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it just... I I... <laughs> I found this film to be frustrating at the best of times, and I don't think the comedy was really for me at any point. Uh, it was all like I was laughing at the wrong stuff. I was laughing at the, the cracks in the seams, basically, and that's where I found a lot of the comedy, and that's not really what it was meant to be. So is this one of the greatest spy films of all time? No. No, it's not. <laughs> it's just not. Um. <laughs> But you know, if you're a, if you're a Mario Bava fan, perhaps if you're a diehard Vincent Price fan, perhaps if you love Franco and Ciccio, perhaps I'm none of those things. <laughs> so I don't think I'll be doing. It. I may watch the Italian version. I am just gonna if I can find it in the UK, I might watch it. Well, I, oh, there is a DVD, an Italian DVD, but it's Region Two, so you can play it there with English subtitles, and that's how I watched it. Um there so yeah look for it um 
but I, I do. I, I hope you become a Bava fan. You don't. Again, I just want to say, don't judge him by this, and say to listeners, don't judge Bava by this movie. He's an excellent director, and uh, you know, to me, he's made one other uh, knocklist uh, worthy spy movie. So he's someone to continue to explore and not write off because of this film. I will save my judgment on him until we tackle. Is it Danger Diabolique? I think you said it was. Yeah, well, depending on which dub you listen to, it's diabolic or diabolique. Yes. <laughs> okay, I will, I will, I will stand and stand down until that point, and then I will judge him for that film. But there you go, folks. That's three no's. Doctor Golfer and the Girl Bombs is not making the knock list. Mister Bradford, I'd like to thank you for coming on for the second time, representing the Spyberry podcast, and also. You know the double O section blog. Now, I mean, we'll have links in the show notes below. But where can people find more from you online? Uh certainly double O section, which had been dormant for a while, partly because of that, uh, you know, desire not to spill the beans even accidentally, but as now being updated again. And uh, by the, t- I'm actually posting my a review that I wrote years and years ago for the first Doctor Goldfoot, but never posted. That will be up by the time this airs. Awesome. Uh, and you can find some other Dr. Goldfoot related content um, and some other Franco and Chichio things on there. Um, so yeah, doubleosection.com or doubleosection.blogspot.com. Um, and on Spybrary, you can often hear me. I'm going to be doing a um, roundtable live Spybrary episode next week, or by the time this airs, that will already have aired, but you can find it in their archives talking about uh, Tim Shipman's list of the 200 best spy novelists um and that's going to be a big spyberry event so uh look look for that one and um i'll be back with jeff quest doing more uh spy rewinds as well and we definitely have jeff back on the show sometime soon as well so uh yeah brothers in arms there from spyberry yeah um and you know on social media are you around anywhere people can find you Oh, I'm tough to find on social media. I'm out there on on Twitter, but uh, not not an active poster. A true spy. So, um, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> under that trench coat, hidden with two other people. <laughs> <laughs> the big man. Well, Matt, thank you again for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Well, there you go, folks. That was our episode on Doctor Goldfoot. And the girl bombs. It didn't make the knock list, and therefore the dossier on the file is complete and filed as classified cam. What are we doing next week? Yes, we are tackling 1945's Confidential Agent, starring Charles Boyer and Lauren Bacall, and returning favorite Peter Laurie. Ooh, Peter Laurie's back on the show. I'll be interested to see what Peter Laurie's doing, potentially not as the bad guy. In this oh, come one. on. Come on. He's probably going to be the okay. villain, right? Come yeah, on. Yeah, he's probably going to be the, he's probably gonna be the <laughs> villain. Okay. Well, he he was one of my favorite bits in uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, so hopefully that stands true once again. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out Confidential Agent and join us next week on the show. Do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you do like what you hear on the show, please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. But until next week, listeners, Cam, I hate coffee but I do like kisses.